799 years ago, in the year 1221, the great Mongol conqueror Chinggis Khan stood victorious on the western bank of the river Indus with 50,000 soldiers. He had just defeated Jalaluddin, the Shah of Khwarazm. Jalaluddin's army was completely destroyed in this battle, which took place near the town of Kalabagh in present-day Punjab. Across the river lay the richest country in the history of the world, India. A land of fabulous wealth, a land that accounted for over a third of the entire world's GDP. A land that would-be invaders fantasized about. A land that was groaning under foreign Islamic occupation because Northern India was ruled at the time by Shamshuddin Iltutmish, the third Sultan of the Turkic Mamluk dynasty, which was founded by Kutbaldin Aybak in 1206. A few months before this battle, Genghis Khan had conquered Jalaluddin's vast empire of Khwarazm. Khwarazm was a Turkic empire that ruled Iran. Its rulers were Turks, not Iranians. It consisted of Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, parts of Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and much of northwestern India, which is today's Afghanistan. Genghis Khan sacked and destroyed the great cities of Samarkand, Bukhara, Nishapur, Uttar, Gurganj, and many more. He laid the Islamic heartland to waste. His army burned Islamic libraries and replaced mosques with temples. It devastated Iran and Afghanistan. And Genghis Khan pursued Jalaluddin all the way from Uzbekistan into Western India. Jalaluddin had the same Turkic Mamluk ancestry as did the invaders who ruled Northern India at the time, which is why he hoped that Iltutmish would grant him asylum in India. Jalaluddin was a foreign Turkic invader who ruled Iran, the same way that Iltutmish was a foreign Turkic invader who ruled India. The Iranian people do not look upon Jalaluddin as one of their own, the same way that the people of India do not look upon Iltutmish as one of their own, or Babur or Akbar, or Aurangzeb. So being granted refuge in India was Jalaluddin's only hope. And he had chosen an excellent defensive position for the battle with the Mongols. It was flanked by high mountains on two sides and the great river on the third side. He had prayed fervently for deliverance, but the miracle he sought never came. His army proved to be no match for the polytheistic warriors who came from 2,000 miles away. It was swept away and slaughtered to the last man. Genghis Khan watched as Jalaluddin frantically rode his horse across the Indus in a desperate bid to escape. All he had to do was cross the river. If he crossed the river, not only would he be able to kill his enemy, but he would also have the chance to smash the Delhi Sultanate and conquer the world's richest country. And he had at his command the great Mongol army, which he had personally forged into the greatest and deadliest fighting force in the entire world. It had already done the unthinkable by conquering China and capturing Beijing. It had conquered the Karakhitai Empire in Central Asia, and it had conquered the enormous empire of Khwarazm. This was an unstoppable, all-conquering war machine. The Delhi Sultanate was no match for it. Genghis Khan is the greatest conqueror in recorded history. He did not lose a single military campaign in his entire life. He could have simply walked into India, 
made short work of the Delhi Sultanate and become the wealthiest man in the world. Instead, to make a long story short, he turned back. He spurned the heaven-sent, once-in-a-lifetime chance to conquer India. He chose to retreat all the way back to Mongolia. He did leave behind soldiers and administrators to govern Afghanistan. Those were the ancestors of today's Hazaras. His decision to not invade India has perplexed historians for centuries. It endures as a mystery even to this day. And there are a number of theories about why he made that decision. Biographies of one of his Chinese advisors claim that a talking unicorn appeared to Genghis Khan at the border of Uzbekistan and India, which is present-day Afghanistan. And this unicorn instructed him to return early from India. Some historians believe that India's hot climate was too harsh for the Mongol army, which was accustomed to fighting in cold weather. Now, the problem with this theory is that the Mamluks, who established the Delhi Sultanate in 1206, also came from a cold climate. And future Islamic invaders of India, such as Timur and Babur, would also come from cold climates. If they could invade India successfully, then why couldn't the far superior Mongols? So it's clear that these theories do not really hold up to close scrutiny. And then there are claims that Genghis Khan refused to invade India for religious reasons. Mongolia's ancient polytheistic belief system, which is called Tengrism in English, has interesting commonalities and similarities with Hinduism. This was the religion or rather the belief system of Genghis Khan. And Buddhism, which essentially is just another form of Hinduism, has had a presence in Mongolia for nearly 2,000 years. Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, would go on to adopt Buddhism as the Mongol Empire's de facto state religion. Most Mongols today are Buddhists. Because of this, it is speculated that Genghis Khan may not have wanted to spill blood in the land that gave birth to Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, this is possible, but it's also true that by conquering India, Genghis Khan would have freed the land of the genocidal barbarians who had not only destroyed Buddhism and Hinduism in Afghanistan, but were also doing their best to eradicate it from the rest of India. So how do we deduce the reasons for his decision? To do that, we need to understand Genghis Khan as a person and as a leader. Genghis Khan is an enigmatic personality. Despite his immense fame and reputation, we don't really know a lot about him. He did not seek to explain his actions and decisions. He did not leave behind a memoir or an account of his career the way Julius Caesar or Marcus Aurelius or Napoleon Bonaparte did. What we know about him comes from two sources. The first is the secret history of the Mongols, which was written after his death. And the second is the accounts of the people he conquered the accounts of his enemies. These sources tell us about the man's deeds, but not much about his motivations. We know what he did, but we don't know why he did those things. To understand why he decided against invading India, we need to gain an insight into his motivations. And to do that, we must examine his life and his career, because therein lie the clues to what motivated him. So let's do that. Genghis Khan was born in Mongolia, sometime around the year 1158. His birth name was Temujin. His father, Yesugei, the leader of the Borjigin tribe, was a wealthy and powerful man. 
the Mongols were and still are a nomadic people, and the Mongolia that Temujin was born in was a disunited, fragmented nation whose tribes were perpetually in conflict. They were always fighting each other. And this conflict was engineered by the empire to the south of Mongolia, China. Chinese rulers collected tribute from various Mongol tribes and encouraged rivalries and conflicts among them. Whenever the Mongols tried to unite, the Chinese launched punitive expeditions against them, either killing them in large numbers or enslaving them in large numbers. One of Temujin's relatives, the Khan Ambagai, who attempted to create a confederation of several tribes, was captured, brought to China, and executed by crucifixion and dismemberment a few years before Temujin was born. The Chinese kept the Mongols fighting each other for centuries in this manner. When Temujin was about 12 or 13 years old, his father was murdered by Turkic tribesmen, and his family was abandoned by his tribe and left to die in the harsh Mongolian winter. Now, Mongolia is a vast, frigid, mostly barren land. Very little grows there, and the temperature routinely goes below minus 30 degrees Celsius in winter. It's almost impossible for a family to survive alone in this environment without the support system and division of labor that a tribal group provides. So being abandoned in this manner was essentially a death sentence. The family did manage to survive, just barely. It was a harsh and brutal childhood. Temujin realized that although his father was a wealthy and powerful man, his wealth proved to be of no use after he died. It was just casually stolen away. He realized that power can make you wealthy but wealth cannot buy you power. When you are powerful, wealth can buy you more power. But when you have no power, your wealth cannot save you from those who have it. Power trumps wealth every time. Timeless wisdom. This is something he never forgot. For the rest of his life, he sought only one thing, power. He disdained wealth, using it as nothing more than a tool. To make a long story short, he spent the best part of the next three decades fighting and raiding and gaining power. He began at the very bottom with absolutely nothing to his name. Over the years, he learned the secrets of power. He acquired a profound understanding of the levers of power and how to wield them. By the year 1206, when Temujin was in his late 40s, he had conquered every single Mongol tribe and created a unified Mongol nation. They gave him the title of Chinggis Khan, which means universal or oceanic ruler. Now, when you have a newly created nation whose tribes have been fighting each other for centuries, it's essential to integrate them and keep them occupied so that old divisions don't crop up. It's essential to give them an overarching common purpose. And that's what Chinggis Khan did. He led them on an invasion of China. This was a retaliatory invasion. Its purpose was to avenge the murder of Ambagai and to punish the Chinese for centuries of interference and atrocities. China was ruled at the time by two dynasties, the Western Xia dynasty in northern China and the Jin dynasty to the east. Genghis Khan conquered the Western Xia by 1210, whose emperor agreed to submit to Mongol rule and become a Mongol vassal. Genghis Khan then invaded the Jin dynasty's territories and he captured and sacked Beijing in 1215. In the year 1218, 
the Karakhitai Empire captured a Mongolian city and killed its king. Now, this king happened to be Genghis Khan's grandson-in-law, so that was a very bad move. In retaliation, the Mongols invaded and conquered Karakhitai, which gave them a direct border with the Khwarazm Empire. That same year, Genghis Khan sent a 500-man strong trade delegation to Khwarazm to establish official trade relations. The Shah of Khwarazm, Alaaddin Muhammad II, who was Jalaluddin's father, had the trade delegation massacred in the city of Uttar, and the goods were auctioned off in Bukhara. Genghis Khan then sent three ambassadors to meet the Shah and demand that the governor of Uttar be handed over for punishment. The Shah had one ambassador beheaded and the other two humiliated before sending them back. What an idiot! So this left Genghis Khan with no alternative but war. He responded by invading and devastating Khwarazm. The Shah Muhammad II escaped to a small island on the Caspian Sea where he died. His son Jalaluddin became the new Shah and was pursued by Genghis Khan all the way to India where what was left of the Khwarazm army was destroyed in the Battle of the Indus in the year 1221. Now when Genghis Khan went on his invasion of Khwarazm, the emperor of the Western Shia, who was his vassal, refused to contribute troops for the invasion. This was a betrayal. In retaliation for this, after conquering Khwarazm, Genghis Khan brought his army back to China and re-invaded the Western Jia Empire. This territory was reconquered by the year 1227. Genghis Khan then prepared to invade the Jin Empire because they too had rebelled against him. However, before he could do that, he died in the year 1227. The cause of his death remains a mystery. His third son, Ogode, who succeeded him as the great Khan of the Mongol Empire, completed the task of conquering the Jin Empire. Genghis Khan's grandson, Kublai Khan, founded the Yuan dynasty in China and was this dynasty's first emperor. So let's recap Genghis Khan's career as a conqueror. He invaded the Western Xia Empire and the Jin Empire in retaliation for the murder of his relative Ambagai and for centuries of Chinese interference and atrocities. He invaded the Karakhitai Empire in retaliation for capturing a Mongolian city and for killing Genghis Khan's grandson-in-law. He invaded Khwarazm in retaliation for extremely grave provocations. And he reinvaded the Western Shia in retaliation for their betrayal. So do you see the pattern? Genghis Khan's invasions were always retaliatory in nature. He went to war only when there were just causes for war. He did send his sons to conquests on far-off lands so that they would each have more than enough territory to call their own after he died. His sons were highly ambitious and he did not want a civil war among them after he died. That would have been disastrous for his newly unified nation. But he himself went to war only in retaliation, only when his red lines were crossed. Now let's bring our attention back to India. The Mamluk invader Sultan Iltutmish was extremely careful not to provoke Genghis Khan. When Genghis Khan entered Punjab in pursuit of Jalaluddin, Iltutmish wisely stayed away, even though Punjab was part of his territory. And even more wisely, Iltutmish refused 
to give Jalaluddin asylum in India. And by doing this, he ensured that Genghis Khan had no reason to feel aggrieved with him. But why didn't Genghis Khan pursue and kill Jalaluddin? The answer to that is simple. With his empire lost and his army destroyed, Jalaluddin had lost everything. He had become a non-entity. He remained a Shah only in name. He would never be a real threat again. So it was pointless to pursue him after his army was destroyed, especially when there was a Chinese betrayal to avenge. But what about India's fabulous wealth? Didn't that tempt Genghis Khan? So like I said earlier, Genghis Khan regarded wealth as nothing more than a means to an end. His armies did plunder enormous amounts of treasure during his conquests, but he personally kept none of it. He insisted that it be divided equally amongst his soldiers and commanders. And he did earn vast amounts of wealth in the form of tribute from his tributary states, but he used that only for administration and governance. The Mongol Empire had more than enough wealth. Genghis Khan understood instinctively that too much wealth would make his people lose the hunger and the iron discipline that set them apart from all others. That was the last thing he wanted. It's also possible that he may not have wanted to inflict pointless collateral damage on the Indian people who were already suffering under brutal foreign rule. He knew that an invasion would cause a massive number of deaths among India's civilian population, whether he liked it or not. It's possible that he did not want to hurt the people of India, even though he was not in a position to help them. It's possible that he felt a cultural affinity with India, the kind of affinity he could not feel with Iran or Afghanistan, which had already been almost completely Islamized by this time. We don't have primary evidence or testimony that proves this conclusively, but I do not rule this out. If you look at Mongolia's society and culture, you will see Indian influences everywhere, even today. To summarize, there are four reasons why Genghis Khan refused to invade India. Firstly, his national interest dictated that he should return to China at the earliest to deal with the Chinese betrayal. The longer he waited, the bolder would the Chinese become, and the greater would be the scale and the magnitude of their rebellion. He had already spent too much time conquering Khwarazm. Time was of the essence. Second, he did not face any provocation from the Mamluk dynasty, which was ruling northern India. Third, he did not want to pursue a man who had already lost everything and who was no longer a threat. And lastly, he was not motivated by a desire for getting wealthy. He was not motivated by wealth. He was motivated by a desire for revenge and justice. He went to war only in retaliation. He invaded countries only when his own country was wronged. Do you know what that is called? It's called having principles. Genghis Khan is one of the most misunderstood and misportrayed historical figures of all time. And this misportrayal is deliberate. Western historians despise the fact that a non-European was far greater than Alexander, Caesar or Napoleon. Islamic historians loathe the fact that a polytheist non-Muslim kafir brought the Islamic world to its knees and reduced it to utter helplessness. And the less we say about Indian historians, the better. Their attitude is, why should we even talk about somebody who did not do us any harm? Why should we glorify someone who did not hurt India? 
let's just stick to glorifying the Mughals. So historians have almost universally portrayed Genghis Khan as a bloodthirsty savage and a greedy, barbaric, genocidal monster. It's curious that Jalaluddin, on the other hand, is depicted as a towering, heroic figure even though he was a complete failure. Jalaluddin achieved nothing of significance. He presided over the destruction of his empire. He presided over the dissolution of his dynasty and he died in obscurity. Napoleon Bonaparte was completely right. History is a set of lies agreed upon. The truth is that Genghis Khan was no more monstrous than Alexander, Caesar, or Timur, or Columbus, or Aurangzeb, or Churchill. Genghis Khan was certainly less savage than the Islamic and European colonizers of various parts of the world, and he was definitely less monstrous than Stalin and Mao. The reason why Genghis Khan is so misunderstood is because historians have adopted a simplistic, reductionist approach with him, while treating European and Islamic rulers with a great deal of depth and nuance and sophistication and deference. And this is precisely the same approach which they take with India's history. Genghis Khan was simply a product of his time. He found a way to survive and succeed in an exceedingly harsh and brutal world. And he did not merely succeed, he excelled. He became the greatest conqueror the world has ever known. Maybe it's time we understood Genghis Khan better. There's a lot we can learn from his life and career. Today you learned who Genghis Khan was. You learned about his life and career. You learned about what motivated him and what did not motivate him. You learned why he invaded the various countries he conquered. You learned why he refused to invade India. You learned a little about leadership and the national interest. And you gained a small glimpse into how Genghis Khan's actions shaped the world we know today. So that's a brief introduction to an important and fascinating chapter of history that our teachers never taught us about. I've given you a high-level overview. Learning about these important passages of history empowers us because it helps us understand the world better. That's the reason why we must learn about them. That's the reason why we must study history. Do you agree? Let me know what you think in the comments below. Please like and subscribe. I'll talk to you soon.